Another one winked and said, I did like that L.A. Confidential. Good flick. Like Donnie Brasco better. More true to life. Also a New York movie, not an L.A. movie. Of course. Small Town Values, Big Time Tragedy, November 19, 1997. Pearl, Mississippi. Mayberry, North Carolina, never really existed except on television. Its biggest crime problem was Otis, the genteel town drunk, nothing the sheriff Andy Taylor couldn't solve, armed only with a little smooth southern talk and folksy wisdom. Growing up in Mississippi, Toby Ivy watched The Andy Griffith Show and dreamed, dreamed of growing up to be another Sheriff Taylor, the lawman portrayed by Griffith as a gentle, small-town boy turned keeper of the flame of old-fashioned virtue and values. In his walk, talk, and kindly ways, Griffith reminded Toby of his own father. Griffith's character was humorous, but he was also a hero to be emulated. Today, Toby Ivy is a police lieutenant in Pearl. He's one of two juvenile police officers here. His beat is kids. His heart aches. And it will forever, he says gruffly. It's been just under two months since this small Bible Belt town was rocked by three murders, allegedly the work of teens in a satanic cult. On October 1st, Toby Ivy got the call, shooting at the high school. He burst into the school's common room to find a scene of carnage, the dead and the wounded, the bleeding and the panicked everywhere. How and why it happened, in Pearl of all places, haunts him. I've long thought of our little town as a kind of 1990s version of Mayberry, he says, but Sheriff Taylor never had to deal with anything like this. In Pearl's combined city hall and cop shop, Toby Ivy and his colleagues believe they've solved the case. Mayor Jimmy Foster, a former police chief, Pearl's present police chief, Bill Slade, Ivy's partner, Lieutenant William Butch Townsend, and others have worked the clock to break the case. A big, quiet, 16-year-old sophomore, Luke Woodham, did the shooting, they say. He stabbed his mother to death at home, then came to school and opened fire on his classmates with a 30-30 deer rifle. Two students, including Woodham's one-time girlfriend, were killed there. Seven other students, apparently targeted at random, were wounded. Pearl Police say they found evidence Woodham didn't act alone. They say six other teenage boys were involved. Police say these boys saw themselves as good students and socially ostracized because they didn't play on sports teams or in the award-winning school band, so they allegedly conspired to get rid of their enemies and win respect. They are accused of forming a secret club called The Croth, a name believed taken from satanic verses. One boy, a self-proclaimed Satanist, according to prosecutors, cast himself as the father of the group, with Luke Woodham as a loyal follower. Whether any of all this can be proved in court remains to be seen. It is a far cry from Mayberry. Toby doesn't look like Andy Griffith. For one thing, God didn't make him tall. He's short and stout. Just plain old fat, I'd call it, he shrugs. But he has Mayberry ways. His squad car is a pickup. He talks with a drawl as deep as the Delta. He moves slowly, languidly, and his small-town values are intact after this confrontation with tragedy. Whatever happens in the future, Toby Ivy says, 
our pearl will never be the same. And let me tell you something. If it can happen here, it can happen anywhere. Parents need to know that. They need to be aware, be alert, and love and hug their kids. He pauses and gets a faraway look in his eyes, just like folks in Mayberry did. The America of Andy Griffith may have been funny. People can ridicule it. But it had something we need to get back. Still Moving for Civil Rights, June 10, 1998 John Lewis is talking about race in America. We need, all of us, rededication and new inspiration to advance the cause of racial cooperation, peace, and harmony in America. This is his story. This is his song. He has been singing it nearly all of his life long. This night, as we talked, neither of us could know that far away in Jasper, Texas, three white men allegedly dragged a black man to his death behind a pickup truck. We would not know of it until the next day, when the news reports began to tell the story. That story is in the present, but it is a throwback to the past, a past John Lewis and I know only too well. We met in the very early 1960s, first in Mississippi, again in Georgia, and then in many datelines long since forgotten as the American Civil Rights Movement gained momentum, crested with the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1964, then crashed with the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. in 1968. Lewis was a young preacher then, a Christian true believer in nonviolence, but an extraordinarily brave one. On two occasions, this reporter saw Lewis nearly beaten to death by segregationist thugs. In those days, he was a point man for numerous nonviolent civil rights campaigns. He was challenging the United States to live up to its ideals. He still is. He believes passionately in America as a land of the free, where a diverse, multiracial mix of citizens can live the dream of liberty and justice for all. Lewis is a United States congressman now, has been for 12 years, a Democrat from Georgia, representing a district that includes most of Atlanta. He remains committed to an America of inclusion and universality. Like Dr. King, Lewis hopes to advance the cause of all Americans working together. He still believes in the dream of one America, not divided along the fault lines of race. But just to talk about it anymore has gone out of fashion, he says. So many people don't want to think about, much less do anything about it. And this worries him. In his profound and engrossing new book, Walking with the Wind, he has written, Talk is fine, discussion is fine, but we must respond, we must act. Mother Teresa acted. She reached out to those who were left behind, the forsaken, the poorest of the poor, the sickest of the sick. And where did she find the strength, her focus, her fuel? She was asked that question back in 1975. Her answer was succinct. The fuel, she explained, is prayer. To keep a lamp burning, she said, we have to keep putting oil in it. That's one reason Lewis looks to America's churches and churchgoers for leadership. Lewis is 58 now and thicker through the middle than he was when we first met, but his energy hasn't diminished. He often paces far into the night, worrying, thinking, and praying about what can be done to help America. I picture him pacing and praying as our conversation nears an end, and he repeats the closing theme of his book. There is an old African proverb, when you pray, you move your feet. 
As a nation, if we care for the beloved community, we must move our feet, our hands, our hearts, our resources to build and not to tear down, to reconcile and not to divide, to love and not to hate, to heal and not to kill. In the final analysis, we are one people, one family, one house, the American house, the American family. Service with a Smirk, June 3, 1998, New York. In one of the city's best retail business sections, on one of the busiest streets, stands an expensive camera and photo shop. A woman comes in to have some photographs developed and printed. A sign in the window and another beside the counter advertise one-hour photos. The small print says this is a premium service and a higher price is attached. The customer is smiling, pleasant. The clerk behind the counter is not. The customer's age is somewhere north of 50. The clerk's somewhere south of 25. The customer says, hello. The clerk doesn't seem to notice. She doesn't have any other customers at the moment. She is working on a crossword puzzle. After an awkward pause, the customer speaks again. I'd like to have my snapshots processed. The clerk grunts, takes the film and the name, and mutters that the prints will be ready in an hour. The customer says, thank you. The clerk does not. In about an hour and a half, the customer comes back. The clerk doesn't look up from her puzzle. The customer stands at the counter for another awkward minute or so. The customer says, smiling, excuse me, please, I'm here to pick up my pictures. The clerk looks at her as if she were a hitchhiker with pets and goes back to her puzzle. Finally, the clerk mumbles, they're not ready, to which the customer replies, when might they be? Don't know. You'll just have to wait or come back. The customer waits another 45 minutes. During this time, and the hour and a half before that, a reporter has been watching and listening. Variations of the same scene have played out with several customers this afternoon. Finally, her smile a little tight by now, the customer asks, could I please speak to the manager? Something obviously is wrong here. The clerk glares at her, then gets on the intercom. Forty-two at the front desk, she says, then gives a little smirk. Evidently, forty-two is code for, Hey, boss, stay in the back unless you want to get an earful from another disgruntled customer. Or, can you believe we convinced another poor sap that there's actually a manager on duty? The customer waits for the manager, for her pictures. Maybe for Godot? Her smile has left and isn't coming back. Another half hour. Another clerk emerges, drops a box on the floor, and the first clerk slaps an envelope on the counter. Here are your pictures, she says. Just another New York story? No way. Just another afternoon in another unfriendly, inefficient American business. In traveling around the country, your reporter has seen this story unfold in one way or another in countless places of business, small and large. It's gotten to the point where this reporter is actually surprised to get good, cheerful service. All too often, service today is unhelpful, rude, sloppy, and deceitful. This development is less than earth-shattering, but more than irritating. What's obvious is that parents aren't telling teachers aren't teaching, and business people aren't training our young people to be good workers. 
Folks, you can teach them all the computer skills you like. You can shower them with enough college and postgraduate degrees to wallpaper the living room. But if they don't learn to work, if they don't learn what it is to be good help to provide a service, then it isn't going to matter. They are going to fail, and so are the businesses that employ them. Once, Americans knew how to work and cared about good, hard work. Maybe good times have spoiled us, most especially our kids. Reggie Denny, September 29, 1997, Los Angeles. I spent yesterday morning with Reginald Denny, his family, and legal advisors, and I thought you'd like to know how he's doing. Five years ago today, Reggie Denny was pulled from his 18-wheeler and brutally beaten at the intersection of Florence and Normandy, ground zero for the L.A. riots. The beating was captured on videotape, broadcast live in Los Angeles and around the world. Some viewers realized the beating was still going on and so rushed outside to defend Reggie. They saved his life. Even so, he was unconscious for days. He still has no memory of the beating. His injuries were severe, over 100 fractures in his face, more than 90 of them significant. Today, his recovery appears to have been remarkable. Reggie Denny walks with a smile on his face and a bounce in his step. If he bears a grudge against the people who beat him, this reporter couldn't detect it. Instead, Reggie Denny tries to understand the people who hurt him. Reggie Denny is cheerful, his wit is quick, and he's even willing to laugh at himself. Showing me his new pickup truck, Reggie said, You can take the guy out of the truck, but you can't take the truck out of the guy. Lately, Reggie has been thinking about the thoughtfulness of others. He talks about the emotional moment when I realized that these thousands of people cared enough to write while he was recovering. His hospital received over 25,000 letters, cards, flowers, plants, and ten teddy bears. By the way, Reggie says he got everything everybody sent, and he's sorry he hasn't finished writing all his thank-you notes. For a while, his eight-year-old daughter, Ashley, was afraid that she'd hurt him if she touched him. But Reggie marvels because although most adults can't always express themselves, young Ashley already knows how important it is to tell him she loves him. At a neighborhood YMCA, Ashley sometimes plays with kids who are physically challenged on crutches or in wheelchairs. Ashley's friends were worried about Reggie. Now he gets a little choked up when he talks about it. I'm walking around, doing okay, and they're stuck in a wheelchair, and they're concerned about me. Reggie Denny says he'd like to set aside a special room in his next house, a shrine.